This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by Patreon community sponsor, our friend Isaiah, at MizuGuy1981. And we thank all our patrons for their monthly support of Priority One Podcast. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Admirals. You're listening to episode 195 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast recorded in part on Thursday, October 23rd, 2014, and available for download or streaming on Monday, October 27th, 2014 at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Cookie. Admirals, you may have noticed that we've dropped all those sponsorship ads during the show. We listened to your feedback, and we understand that it got in the way of the enjoyment of the show. So that's why we're moving our efforts to Patreon, a service that will allow us to reward patrons of the show, supporters like you. As you know, this production is a volunteer endeavor, and we often spend our own money to bring you the content that you've grown to enjoy. So please, consider a monthly contribution by visiting patreon.com forward slash priority one. Captains, you may have noticed that we're going a little off formula these last few episodes. That's because we have hours worth of content from our visit to Cryptic Studios. This also gives some of the Priority One podcast team an opportunity to take a much-needed break and a chance to play Delta Rising without going dark for several episodes. So here's what we have in store for this episode. In STO News this week, the only thing creating a lot of buzz is something we can't talk about in great detail anyway because it was considered an exploit, and doing so would go against Star Trek Online's ULA. So instead, we'll provide a link in the show notes to an official statement from executive producer Stephen D'Angelo addressing the issue. So we're going to jump right in and present our interview with lead content designer Charles Gray. Then an interview with STO's lead producer Stephen Ricosa and producer Maria Rosso. Later, we'll open hailing frequencies and review your incoming messages. Without further ado, computer interview Charles Gray. Hot. Security clearance level 3 or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization Sisko Alpha 1 Alpha. Logs accessed. All right, Captains, and joining us is Charles Gray, lead content designer for Star Trek Online. And, sir, you've probably been a very busy person these last several months gearing up for Delta Rising. Yeah, it's been a nonstop uh, activity here. <laughs> Why don't we start from the beginning? Okay. You know, uh, Delta Rising gets planned, and what is the first step in building content for something as massive as this? So the, the first thing that was discussed and um, fought over uh, vehemently was what we were going to do and sort of the scope of things. And so um, ideas that were kicked around were increasing the level cap doing another faction like we did for Legacy of Romulus, and really just what an expansion was going to be, like their second expansion this time around. We decided that 
the level cap was going to be the more interesting way to go. There were a lot of factions we, we kicked around, but none of them really sort of hit as hard as Romulans did uh, last time around. So we wanted to add more to the, the, the end game. And that meant more levels, new ships, new weapons, and then we needed to figure out where you would use all of that stuff. So uh, ideas tossed around, of course, you know, Gamma Quadrant, more sort of exploring nooks and crannies of the Alpha Beta Quadrant. But we really haven't done a lot with Voyager. And so Voyager really became sort of a, a nucleating point for developing the story and what Delta Rising has become. You guys had ran that uh, community poll some time ago, too, about what, I think it was what show were people most interested in seeing more brought into the game from, and I think Voyager won overwhelmingly. I'm not surprised because uh, there really is no Voyager content in yeah. the game. You know, we've done a, an okay job of sort of getting, or at least touching on all the other shows and, you know, movies in certain respects, but there hasn't been a Voyager presence, really. So to add that to the game, I think, really helps sort of complete Star Trek Online sort of Star Trekiness. <laughs> What is different about this new content in comparison to Legacy of Romulus, in any terms? Because we were adding to the back end of the game, adding you know, levels 50 to 60, 51 to 60, it allowed us to increase difficulty um, and sort of go for stuff that an experienced player would find challenging or interesting. It was, uh, Legacy of Romulus was really about trying to attract new players, teaching them the game, getting them you know, from that initial experience all the way to endgame and joining the rest of the players that have already been in Star Trek Online. Whereas this one, was, Delta Rising, really is about you know, adding that next step for all players that have sort of been here from the beginning. It seems a logical next step since in the last basically a year, you have a revamped tutorial for all three factions. Well, revamped tutorial for the original two factions, plus a whole new faction and a new way to play for either of those. But then adding new experience of leveling to the game for many people for the first time in several years had to be a different... You had to think about that a different way than, say, what was it like to level from lieutenant commander to commander. So how did you approach that as far as what each level meant or what the rewards would be for each level or even just the pacing of how quickly you would level relative to previous levels? So early on, we decided that <clears throat> we were aiming at sort of an equivalent amount of time to play as Legacy of Romulus or sort of, I guess, the, the initial zero to, to 50 experience. We wanted to sort of double the time spent in-game. Um, so that was sort of the, the starting point. And we knew we couldn't deliver that same amount of content that we have spent five years building up. So we started to focus more on uh, repeatable content. So we've had a lot of success with Adventure Zones. So we knew we wanted to add an Adventure Zone to this release to, to help add repeatable ground content where you could sort of go in and play you know, the same missions, but you know, each time you play them, it's a different experience because of the players you're playing with. We wanted to add repeatable sector patrols. And I think this time we because we focused on the repeatable aspect of it, um, there's a lot more randomization. So each time you go in there, it should be a new experience. And 
it shouldn't be the the same sort of thing that you you get in Taudewa, where it's you know go to the archer system and fight the same guys in the same <laughs> way every single time. So we really sort of wanted to land that size and that scope, but we knew we had to be smart about it, and so that's where we started. But you know, Star Trek Online really is a collection of stories. At, at the end of the day, like our mission work, our episodes is where we. Th- think you know the, our our a plus you know awesome stuff is and so like that really was like we have to deliver at least one episode every single level as the carrot to keep you going and so the focus of delta rising was really to to make a story driven 10 levels that would sort of get you like really excited to get to the next level to get the next bit of the story and then oh, i need to get to that next level and get the next bit of the story uh, and keep that drive going. And I, I think the story we came up with was, is fantastic. I'm really excited to share it with everyone. New Romulus is a massive, massive ground zone. What did you learn from that and try to apply with now the new Kobali homeworld? What did you know you desperately wanted in the new Kobali homeworld that you may not find in any other adventure zone? Sort of comparing it to New Romulus, we learned in New Romulus that we made New Romulus way bigger than it needed to be. There's a lot of combat space in it, but not a lot of it is well utilized. So, I mean, you can enter the, the crater and go for miles and find encounters to fight and things to click on, but the vast majority of players there sort of stick very close to that initial hub that you transport into. And so a lot of it is sort of wasted space, and that had a huge sort of budgetary effect on environment art. It made the zone sort of huge and unwieldy. So, you know, I think that's a lesson we've learned, you know, in Nimbus, in the Dyson Sphere Battle Zone, and a few other places that we've sort of applied those lessons. So, getting to Kabali Prime, we wanted to make it a much tighter experience. And so, uh, we wanted to keep sort of the idea of neighborhoods, which I think really worked well with New Romulus, where each section is themed and has its own sort of distinct story. You know, again, playing to that idea that story is the most important thing in Star Trek Online, and we really want to sort of use that as the the carrot to get you to continue forward. So we had each neighborhood, you know, with its own story and its own combat feel to it. So with the the neighborhoods, we wanted to to keep them close together, and I think because it's a a war zone, it's, it's easy to have them almost seamlessly transition to one another. We don't need those long, winding paths to, to connect them all. And in the end, I think we ended up with a really sort of tight zone at the end of the day where there's not a lot of dead space. You're just constantly moving between Battlefront and Battlefront. What has been the most challenging, or what was the most challenging part of developing Delta Rising? The most challenging part has been that uh, we've never raised the level cap, you know, since launch from, I guess we, we did raise the level cap from 45 to 50, but it's been so long since we've raised the level cap that uh, there have been, there's been so much turnover on the team that no one knows where all the skeletons were buried. And <laughs> it was just a constant process of, oh, we forgot to hook up this. Oh, there's this you know, reward table that only goes to 55 randomly. Um, so if you kill a battleship, you stop getting looted, 56. <laughs> so I'm sorry, so these were things that you had found in from old development so yeah it, it was like code artifacts like code art yeah yeah i mean it was like y2k but yeah, level yeah, 55 yeah. bug <laughs> yeah exactly so there were a lot of places where stuff was hard-coded to certain values that we weren't expecting to be those particular values 
And so for about a month straight, it was, you know, every other day, uh, you know, finding something brand new to, that was, you know, contributing to a headache for, you know, what the, you know, XP grants were or what loot was dropping or, you know, even the, the, you know, congratulations, Lieutenant, but, you know, congratulations, Fleet Admiral, like that sort of stuff, like finding all of those hookups was, was quite the process. What has been the most rewarding? Getting to work with all of the uh, amazing talent from Voyager. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, every time that we had a, a voiceover recording session, um, as soon as everyone on the team heard that, you know, Robert Picardo is recording, everyone would run over to the, the audio department and listen at the door to, <laughs> to hear him, you know, Skype in or do the, uh, the interview yeah. or the, the voiceover recording. I think you blew the fan base's mind when you announced five. I think most people had an idea that Garrett Wong was going to be there because of his tweeting. And then when Al said, you know, there were a couple more coming, you know, more than one more. We're like, oh, this is interesting. We're thinking, well, maybe Robert Picardo, he's very active. He's a big fan of, you know, Star Trek, and he's very involved. And I bet uh, Ethan Phillips would do it. He's a very funny, down-to-earth guy. It's like, well, who else, you know? And then just light us up with twice as many more mm-hmm. people as we expected. So I can only imagine. Yeah, and Garrett actually came on site to do his recording, and it was great meeting him. And he loved interacting with the team, was wandering around the, the cubes and telling stories of his time on Voyager. We got to see some of the videos. Yeah. <laughs> Very really cool. cool. I know you touched on this a little bit, but I'm having, I'm trying to, because I'm not a game designer, what is different about a level cap or adding 10 new levels to a character versus 1 to 10, you know, for versus developing levels for new Romulus? And, and I know you, you touched on this a little bit, but I guess I'm trying to just kind of, you know, we have the kit revamps. What, at its core, how how different is it? What is that labor like? So, I mean, I, I think you could take sort of any 10-level section of the game and it would be a completely different experience to develop for. So, you know, the first 10 levels you're teaching new players how to play the game and so you need to do a lot of hand-holding, be very gentle with the combat encounters, really, you know, say, okay, you're going to take out your pistol and use it now. I appreciate that because when I played, I was scared to death. (laughs) I really was. I was scared of the first couple missions. I was like nervous, shaky even. And it it was at a good pace, so... Yeah, it's important. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of complex systems in in Star Trek, um, specifically. Two games. Yeah. And so there's a lot we have to teach. And so it's not just a tutorial level. It really is the first ten levels that you are teaching people how to play the game. And you're slowly rolling out new things. You know, and, and as you sort of go along, you can start opening stuff up and get a little bit more challenging and sort of expect the, the players to, to know how to do things and do them together. So it's no longer, okay, I click one power and you know, the bad guy dies. It's now, okay, I will have to you know, click this bridge officer power and maybe transfer my powers to weapons. And you sort of you know, get to, to expect a little bit more out of the player as you sort of continue on through the game. By the time you're level 50, we really expect you to be playing cues, you know, learn what gear means, what all the different stats are. And so, you know, adding 10 more levels on top of that, it's, it really sort of opens up the, the, what we can expect the player to know and 
how we can expect them to be playing. And so it's not, you know, here's, you know, a mission and a reward and, you know, have fun. It's, it's you know, here, here's a legitimate challenge that we're, we're building into this mission. And, you know, it, it may take you a little bit longer, but, you know, at the end of the, when you finish it, you're going to get a, a new mark of gear. And it's like, oh, well, like, I, I need, you know, three more Mark 13 beam arrays to, to add to my ship, so I'm going to play this again. And, you know, as you keep on adding to, to your ship, you sort of get better and you work through it faster. And, you know, that, that's sort of what we're, where the, the fun and the, the new challenges come from for, for increasing the level cap. How has the gear upgrade system and the new Mark 14 gear affected the development of content for the new 10 levels? Uh, this, it's probably easiest to sort of explain it in the mentality of queues. So we have drastically redone the queue system, um, as you've probably seen on Tribble, where there's now three difficulty levels um, for almost all the queues. And so there's a, a normal um, level where we sort of expect most players to be playing sort of equivalent to the normal difficulty now. Advanced is sort of equivalent to what the old elites were. You're now getting bolstered up to, to 60 uh, versus the enemies, but at the same time, the, the difficulty's been ratcheted down a little bit from the old numbers to sort of compensate for that. So if you come in as a, a level 50 player, you're not necessarily going to get blown away because you're missing the, the extra console and the extra bridge officer seat. But it, it should be a good fight and sort of comparable to, to what we have now. And then we wanted to add Elite on top of that. And that's where we really expected people to have Mark 14 gear and, like, you know, be those players who are looking for every edge over the enemy. And we really wanted to sort of ratchet that difficulty up. And that's where the decision to even add Mark 14 came from was we really wanted to add that challenge for players looking for a challenge. You guys implemented that like exactly the way I have envisioned it. So I was so excited about that blog, the normal advanced elite, to, to, of course, to mirror the way you can do that with uh, The difficulty slider. Right, exactly. So it's not like I, I feel like I was a prophet or whatever, but I was still happy. And we've seen, you know, videos of guilds destroying our current elite content. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so, like, we really felt bad because these are people that have invested lots of time and effort into the game to get the best of the best gear and the best of the best ships, and we, we wanted to give them something that they could really, you know, sink their teeth into. Well, we, we had this discussion about power creep, you know, and, right, is that... Right, yes, where the same folks who put in that effort have unfortunately for themselves trivialize the content so they no longer have a new mountain to climb. And this gives us a new mountain to climb. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm that level of player. I'm competent, though, and I, I have definitely done some elite STFs in small amounts of time, not like what some folks have done, but it's interesting. A little daunting, but interesting. Yeah. Now, so tell us again, as lead content designer, uh -huh. you have your hand in essentially everything that is developed for these 10 new levels. Just kind of go through it with us what you have kind of overseen in terms of Delta Rising's content. As the lead content designer, I was in on the ground floor for the discussions of what the expansion was going to be, um, helped decide the, the scope of the, the expansion, how many missions we were going to be able to deliver, how many adventure zones, how many queues, and sort of really trying, it, it all started out trying to figure out um, 
the systems we wanted to deliver and what the necessary amount of content was to support all of that. So, you know, for a typical release, when we release like a new reputation system, we sort of figure we need, you know, X number of queues, maybe a battle zone, maybe an adventure zone to really give players enough to play and not get bored and earn the marks that they need to develop in that reputation. And so with the expansion, it, it wasn't a reputation system. It was we need places to get experience. We need places to get expertise. And so, you know, trying to figure out what the requisite amount of content was to, to deliver on that was a little challenging. It was something we haven't done before. Once we settled on, we wanted to increase 10 levels. We knew we needed at least 10 episodes to, you know, one per level to sort of hit that story cadence that we really wanted to hit. But then what sort of fills in the cracks? You know, if you're expecting someone to play a mission and not get to the next level, what are they going to be doing? Are they going to be doing queues? Are they going to be doing sector patrols? Are they going to be going to an adventure zone? And we said yes to all of that and sort of tried to figure out how to, to balance the numbers for what we could deliver in the time frame we were talking about developing it. And so once we sort of had an idea of what the the amount of content was, we then uh, sat down and tried to figure out what the story was. And so we settled on Delta Quadrant. We wanted to see what had become of this place 30 years after Voyager had gotten home. And so, you know, what enemy groups were we going to fight? We, you know, went through <laughs> giant lists of basically every single bad guy from Voyager and who has the cool ships and who has the, the cool alien looks to them. And, you know, we're crossing off stuff and there were huge arguments about who was going to make it and who wasn't. And it was an interesting conversation with Art as to what they were willing to sign up for because, you know, we, let's get you to do the swarm and no, we can't commit to doing the swarm. And so once we figured out enemies, then you know, that helped to figure out what the story was going to be. So we need to, you know, interact with these enemy groups. We need to explore stuff. And from that, we sort of then reached out to the, the talent from Voyager, the, the actors, and tried to figure out who we could get to support the story. And, you know, once we have Neelix signed, it's like, oh, we, we have to have an episode where you're hanging out on a Talaxian base somewhere, and you're, you know, you're, you're meeting a chef, and you're you know, learning about Leola Root's stew and <laughs> all that stuff. And, you know, so, like, all these elements sort of come together to really solidify what the, the story becomes. And, you know, once we have a, a good story in place, it, it really becomes pretty easy to, to hand it off to anyone on this team. And they're all great at executing episodes, as I hope you've seen over the last several years. Um, you know, once once it's in their hands, I sort of periodically play test it and give them feedback and help to, to tighten it up and make it sync with uh, you know the episode before it and the episode after it and make sure that all of those elements tie in together uh, and so when you if you've played the episodes on Tribble like you know we revisit the Talaxian uh, base and so making sure that those elements connect and there's it, it really feels like you're coming back to the, the same place but it's different there is that juxtaposition um, because we had you know two different people developing it, so making sure that they were communicating. So it's a lot of what my role has been in helping to to guide uh, the development of Delta Rising. Exciting. 
Well, Charles, thank you so very much for sitting down with us and, and chatting about uh, Delta Rising. Everybody's excited about it. Uh, the forums are a buzz. Subreddits are a buzz. Our, our audience is a buzz. People and who don't play the game are excited yeah, about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, again, thank you so very much for sitting down with us and chatting. And, of course. Uh, I know it's late in the evening uh, towards the end of the workday, but thank you. Of course. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, Captains, and we are now joined by Stephen Ricosa, the lead producer of Star Trek Online, and Maria Rosso, producer of Star Trek Online. Thank you so very much for joining us this afternoon. It's been a busy Thursday, and I know that things are gearing up for Delta Rising, right? What? Yeah. <laughs> I hear. I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> it's only a, a few days away. Nothing could possibly go wrong. Now, we saw each other at Star Trek Las Vegas, yeah. and a lot has come out in blogs and posts and forum discussion about Delta Rising. What can you tell us about these next few days? What do you what or the last week leading up to to Delta Rising and its release? What what have you been doing uh, to batten down the hatches and prepare? Well, I got my hair colored. Okay. It looks beautiful. <laughs> uh, I took a nap under my desk. I mean, yeah. I'm not really, No. Then we we filled the decanter with scotch okay. um, for the drinking game with Every time you find a bug. No, every time someone says, did you read the patch notes? Yeah. Take it. Yeah, take a shot. It was good. Drunk by 10. No, it's, it's, been, it's been crazy. We've been doing punch lists, going through major issues. I mean, this has been going on for weeks and weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of hitting the triple boards, hitting you know, Reddit, anywhere else where people are giving feedback, collating it all, our own QA team. Production jumping in and testing, trying to find issues, fixing what we can, writing jeers about what we can't, and just... Uh, Jira's our bug system, I'm sorry, our bugs. And and just getting our bug count down to as low as possible so that way this release is as clean as it can possibly be. So that's what we've been been doing. When dealing with bugs, is the focus towards bug reports? Is it feedback on the forums? Where, where are you targeting? Let's say this last week, what have you been hyper-targeting? Well, this last week, feedback, probably not so much for immediate release because it's not worth the risk. For every bug you fix... You risk introducing at least one more. Sometimes you break whole systems, you know. So we will focus on the last week just trying to get stability down. So anything that halts progression through the game or that sort of thing, that's what we look to fix in the final week. And then in the in the meantime, in the back of our heads, we're thinking, okay, so what are we going to put out the next week like the really nice to have things that were just a little too risky to you know to get on launch day you guys have seen it in the past where we have our season and then there's a couple of small fixes and then we have a couple weeks later this gigantic build with all the things we wish we could have got in but didn't want to risk all the time because then qa's got to check all those things that we put in the build there's uh there's a lot to it so we're already we're already thinking weeks out now, I actually want to take a step back a moment, because I, this is actually the first time that we've been able to interview you guys. Stephen, we, we, the only time we met was at Vegas, and we, we briefly met uh, last year as well. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about a day in the life of, of a producer for a massively multiplayer online game like Star Trek Online? Go ahead. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, my days are far less exciting than Maria's now, since mm-hmm. I'm mostly in meetings. Okay. Um, but it's... All about looking at what's coming up on your teams, checking their schedules, making sure they're getting everything done, and then making sure the live game is still running, and then looking towards future releases and making sure all the planning's in place to hit the ground running on all of those. That's kind of the higher level lead producer side of it. Maria's got the far more fun. I would say that the big overview is like, what does a producer do? Well, we make things happen 
with as few bumps as possible, right? Like we will do the scheduling and we make sure people are on task and make sure that if they have an issue that's preventing them from working, that it's getting fixed in a timely manner. On a day-to-day basis, though, you know, you're talking to people, hey, how's this thing going along? Do you need any help? Can I get you a drink? (laughs) Or like, okay, guys, we really got to get, oh, my gosh, this huge issue. Please, we need everyone to help with this. We got to nail it down. And like. It changes day to day. I like in my training when I talk with them, I like to say it requires a fluidity of thought. You're thinking on your feet. Every day is different. You never know what problems the team's going to encounter, the game's going to encounter, what your future release is going to encounter. There are some things you can plan for, and there are many things you can't. You just got to be capable of, again, thinking on your feet, being flexible in your thoughts, and, and making things happen. Yeah. It's very squishy. We talk about this in some of our internal discussions that producers in general fill gaps in um, the strengths like of the other members of the team. So the the particular discipline lead, like maybe the content lead, he perhaps his forte is not communication, right? Which actually is not true here. But suppose that was the case, then the producer could could stand up and kind of fill that role and help that part of of the process go more smoothly and it's the same for other aspects and other teams what do you think is the most challenging part of producing a game like star trek online staying nice (laughs) (laughs) i don't have that problem because i don't try to stay nice (laughs) well i mean and to to elaborate though it's you know uh tensions run high with each team member, right, there's a great deal of stress like, oh, I, I don't want any bugs in whatever I've created. And if somebody finds one, it's like, oh, no, I got to get that fixed. And that's really stressful. And then sometimes they find out, oh, it can't go out. And then they get more stressed. And so you've got a group of people, like 40-something people, who are all really, really stressed out. And um, so sometimes it doesn't take much to kind of throw throw fuel on that fire. And then not just that, there's also the uh, interacting with the player base side of it where sometimes their passion gets the better of them and um, it, it can come out in a, in a negative way, in uh, very personal sorts of ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. And staying nice in those situations, I'm sure you guys have experienced this, can be rough. Yeah. I yeah. feel like one of the bigger aspects, and it happens throughout your career, is learning how to change your view, right? When you first come in as a baby producer, you, you might have one team, you know, and they don't have a lot of interdependencies between teams. So as you're moving up the ranks, you're like, oh, now I have one team and this team doesn't really have to work with anyone, but now I have another team and they have to work with two other teams I don't own, which means I got to interact with a different producer and their lead to make sure everything gets done. And as you continue to move up the chain, you own more and more teams. So there's more and more interdependency until you get to the point where you're kind of owning the whole game. And you have to think about it like that all the time, where it's like, oh, man, we could totally squeeze in this sweet feature. But that could impact the major release we have three months from now if we try and get that in. So you go from just worrying about one team to worrying about multiple teams to worrying about the game as a whole. Um, And it can be tough to wrap your, your brain around at times. I mean, I've been doing this on STO for five years now and so it's just that whole process for me right maria's kind of halfway through and then we've got our new producer who's just at the beginning of that trail yeah. um so that's that's kind of a big challenge too just professionally and and learning that even if you really 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 want something that's your pet project that 
sometimes you just can't do it, even though theoretically you could make it happen. Now, now that it's live, I can talk. The kit revamp yeah. from earlier in the year has been on the schedule to get done for like two years. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, all right, we're going to do it this time. And nope. And we cut it, yeah, you know, no just because I know it can't fit. No, software doesn't really have the time. No, system doesn't really have the time. Um, and it's, it was one of Al's huge pet projects. Every time we talk about what we're going to do next, we're doing the kit revamp. And so when we finally got it done, we couldn't believe it. We're like, oh my God, what, what are we going to complain about now? What's the next? You know, we, everyone's got their pet projects. Everyone's got their babies. Um, I've got stuff. I've got something I've been talking about for years that may come to fruition soon. I'm super excited. Can't can you, wait to, can you hint us? Not yeah, even yeah. a little bit. Oh. Oh. This is actually really insightful because I hear a lot of times people are, oh, they, you haven't fixed this bug. It's been years and years. And I think some people think it's just a five-minute thing. You can just put in some, yeah, that's, I'm sure some that's codes and it's fixed. But the way that you guys are explaining it, it's like a chain effect, and you really have to be careful, and yeah. it doesn't take five minutes. There was, one, there was a simple thing I fixed, actually, minor, right? Somebody complained uh, in the foundry under buildings, I think it is, there's like a vase, something like this. And so I was like, oh, well, that's easy. I'll fix that. So I changed it and I called it a detail instead of a building. And it actually caused all these projects to not be able to publish because they were referring to this specific building and it wasn't a building anymore. And... uh, yeah, that was sad. I mean, I tested it, but I didn't have all their projects and know that that would fail. So, like, that was a pretty massive failure. And it was this tiny little, you know, one-word change in a data file. It's like this huge, oh, whoops, okay, guys, we should get this fixed out soon, please. I don't know who made the bug, sorry. <laughs> but now you have this perfect example that you can always cite. No, there's a really million like, There's a million. I, I've got them, too. Everyone's, yeah. everyone's yeah. got them. So what has been the most challenging aspect of producing an expansion like Delta Rising? I'd say just like the legacy of Romulus, the scope of it, right? It, it eats up so much of the year. I mean, we've been working on this for, we've been planning it for over a year and actively working on it for over six months. And so you make things six months ago and then you continue just, cre- you know, making stuff and then you come into the polish um, time and you look back at what you made before and you know, maybe it's not as good as you remember, so it's going to take more time to clean up. Um, but there's just so many moving parts, and that's where um, proper planning in advance and really knowing what you're going to get, how long you think it's going to take to polish. Um, we learned a lot from Legacy of Romulus and applied those lessons here. And, man, it really paid dividends yeah. in that polish time. We're like, man, we after Legacy, we kind of did a postmortem. What do we wish we could have done differently? And we did it differently, and it was super obvious. Like, wow, this was awesome. So we got took those lessons, put them here, and we'll definitely learn them for whenever the next expansion uh, yeah. rolls around. I was going to say, um, like for my teams, I think the biggest challenge was the uncertainty of getting our celebrity talent because I handle the character art team who, of course, had to model them. And so it's like that's that was a, ooh, I think they got a total of like 30 days, 30 man days to work on those. And it's like that was a whole portion of the schedule. It's like, okay, um, you know, it's not on the schedule for now. And then it's like, oh, wait, actually, we are going to be able to get them. Okay, we're not. We are. Okay, no, it's pretty sure. And I'm like, okay, I'm putting them on the schedule. And it, But it was this huge chunk of time that originally had not been allotted because at the beginning when we were planning it, it was just pipe dream that we'd be able to do it. And, um we were lucky. Sometimes dreams do come true. <laughs> it reminds me of in content, you know, she was talking about contingencies in the schedule. We were building the episodes and we're like, well, we want to have these celebrities with you, but we were building them well before we had contracts. So, well, in every episode, you're going to have a companion. 
And we're right. going to build it so that way it's an NPC. Maybe it's a female Borg NPC. It's similar to female <laughs> Borg. Or maybe it's a male Vulcan NPC. And we're going to build all of these. And if we don't get celebrities, it's just this NPC, you know, person, part of the uh, Delta, uh, Delta Alliance. Um, and then every time we got someone, we're like, all right, cool. Let's get Picardo in there. Well, that's, yeah, that's it, was, uh, it added a little extra step for all the content designers because they wrote all the dialogue for just some random person and then they had to come back around yeah. um, Kestrel and, these, and come back around alright we gotta really make this feel like the doctor um, really make this feel like Neelix it was uh, that was a challenge as well because we just originally said yep we're gonna, of course we'll get Neelix why wouldn't we and then we started developing it well now we might not so we have to just we had all these contingency plans and it resulted in a little extra work for the team but I think it paid off and the animation too because we then it's like well we can't have this kind of th- a cutscene that would be fine if it didn't have you know Jerry Ryan in it <laughs> it's like okay we, we gotta spend more time on this and so like that became a huge thing too well, you guys probably haven't seen them yet because Steve just got them into the build but we've got some really great like very doctor animations and very Neelix animations because they have some interaction with each other doing these little hand gestures it's, it was just so perfect when I saw them because they were like look at that it's just like Robert Picardo it yeah. was fantastic what, what are you guys most proud of for Delta Rising I kind of feel like the whole thing as a whole. So I had never watched Voyager before. And once we started on this, I was like, okay, you know, I actually find for the first time really have a compelling reason to watch an entire series. So in about a month and a half or two months, I watched all of Voyager. And it's really fresh in my mind. And it, it strikes me continually as I play it it really feels to me like we captured some of that and I think that's what I'm most proud of is that like we made beautiful things and it just is so reminiscent of the show I'm super proud of the no, nobody will see it really the planning like just all the planning phase that we went into uh, went into this we really god we had everything ready for the team ready to go with stories and no one you know no one from content or any other teams came in and like oh what am I doing everything was set and we we usually have it everything pretty well put together but this was like we we went all out because the uh, expansions take so much time and effort yeah and um, but if i had to pick a feature that you saw i would say the story i think we put a ton of time in way ahead of this just non-stop story meetings what's the story you want to tell who's the delta quadrant critter group you know who's the enemy that we want to have who's the big bad what are the all the crazy aliens and uh, that fall from voyager the guy you saw in one episode you know the octanti the species 6339 they didn't even have a name in the episode who are we going to bring in the story is super awesome. I don't know if you guys have been playing on Tribble. We withheld the big finale, right? The big finale episode we withheld that has all the big reveals in it. Yeah. That is super awesome. It just ties so much stuff together. And there's even more beyond that. Just the amount of planning and just truly the Trek story. Just the gray areas and the morality and the and just talking with all your all your bridge crew. Ah, it's just fantastic. It, it makes me so excited. I'll say actually another to in a behind the scenes thing that made us proud. We had three four. Four people, I think, go out on paternity leave during five? Five. Five people go out on paternity leave during, let's say, from March to June, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and so the fact that that, like, was like, we're still in good shape, that is actually pretty amazing. Of- I feel, like, proud of everyone involved like you know actually some people were out and wrote very good documentation for like okay here's what needs to happen and here's where I left off and so it was not like this nebulous thing like what's going on I don't know they're not in the office ah! so, some of us left a one month old infinite home to go to STLV <laughs> 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 sorry honey <laughs> <laughs> alright 
Thank you so much, Steve. We appreciate it. No Thank problem. You. It's great being here. Uh, Al Rivera had been interviewed by MMORPG, and he mentioned that that the story missions will not end with Delta Rising. That in the coming months, new featured episodes and missions will be released, which is exciting. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I guess what I'm trying to say is. There was a time back when Dee Stahl was executive producer. He was quoted to saying that we want to have a featured episode every month or every week. And that never happened. And players were concerned about it. You know, they loved the, the featured episodes. It was their weekly dose of Star Trek. Right. And now we're starting to see this content, you know, this pretty steady flow of content. And then we hear or we read something along the lines of that we may even get more of that between expansions and between patches. What, what can you say about that? Right. Well, I mean, I think two parts. Number one, I, th- I believe when um, Dan said that, we were looking at much shorter development times in our featured episodes, but we have just continually... It's kind of like there's maybe some competition where they're like, oh, look at what they did. I can do better. And so they keep taking more and more time. Right now, uh, it takes 30 man days for a content designer and... 30 days for an environment artist to do one featured episode. So that's actually six weeks, not a month, right? Because of, you know, weekends. Uh, (laughs) And so because of that, there's no realistic way we could have them every week unless we went this huge drought where we released nothing because, like, that's just way too much. Even every month would be a stretch. So we, but we do want to put more out there. So what we've started doing is planning now and okay we have this huge thing or what fits in there and then we're purposely thinking out what can go after this you know what would be what are the things that we can tell between our big expansions and our big seasons because some stories you can do that in right like uh, I guess you could say if you liken it to Voyager the first couple seasons were all like Kazon, there was kind of a lot of Vidian, and then later they kind of get away from that, right? And and for a while they have a bunch of you know monster of the week or whatever they call it, and and then later they start getting a little bit more into um, Borg type stuff, if I recall, and that sort of thing. So, but those kind of went together, and that's how we're viewing our seasons. It's like, yeah, this is for the most part, you know, an overarching thing, but there are still those little stories that we can tell in between. That'll, that'll tie things together. So that's what we're on right now. We're I'm not sure where we're going to end up with um, frequency of releases. And uh, even if I was, I'm pretty sure I can't say. But, <laughs> but, I mean, we all know that we'll do a winter thing and a summer thing, fortunately. I my One of my pet projects, like since I started in QA, I was not the biggest, like, Trekkie or Trekker. I liked the original series, but that was about the extent of anything. First Contact, what? You know. But I, so I looked, started reading stuff about it, and I'm like, there's a First Contact Day? We need to celebrate this. This needs to be a thing. Why don't we have this? They're, I'm like, okay, fine. We can't celebrate the non secular holiday. Let's, well, fine. Let's, let's, First Contact Day. We can do that, right? There's got to be other holidays. And that's been like my thing that I've pushed for. And um, other people are getting on board. So hopefully we can get more of that stuff in there. Like, Actually, why don't we first talk a little bit about what you would like to talk about with with Delta Rising, if you have anything that you wanted to... Yeah. Let me think on that, but I'll go to the part of this where I interview you. Oh, okay. Here we go. So, how did you get into Star Trek Online? Okay, so I was in a um, Star Trek fan club, and so I made an account 
and it's, this was my first MMO. But it, my love for Star Trek kept me going, even through, even though like I hit some major bugs. <laughs> but um, I just loved Star Trek so much. And for me, it was because it was Star Trek, not because it was an MMO or because it was a game. But then I kind of transitioned into loving the game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We actually, I think, we do user hardware surveys occasionally um, because whenever there's a bug report submitted, we get all that info. And Star Trek is an anomaly in that it has, like, the lowest, the the, the highest percentage of, of players with low system specs. And... and we believe that it's because we have gotten so many people in who are there because they like Star Trek, and it is their first MMO. I find that really, really interesting. I actually haven't played any of the modern MMOs myself. I've played one ages and ages ago. It's really funny because they'll be like, oh, you know, like this one thing, and wow. And I'm like, yeah, uh, okay. I just now found out about Leroy Jenkins. Yeah, that's how I play. <laughs> for the record, I everybody know. else knows. That's how I play. Erroneous <laughs> Jenkins. Yeah, no, I'm, I just go in guns blazing, and if I die, okay, I respawn and go back. Fortunately, I don't think that would work in WoW. Which so don't you know? If you don't like that kind of gameplay, you probably don't want to team with me. Because that's how I play. <laughs> and then yeah, she she was a new new to MMOs and now a podcaster. Brings a tear to the eye. I know. Yeah, I know. that's pretty amazing. Yeah, my my one year anniversary was in June. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, this is why you do this. I was ta- telling uh, someone today, like, this is like the best part of our jobs is so many people in the industry. You don't get to interact with you know your player base right for multitude of reasons some companies they're just too big right like there's no way and then some companies they have this culture of like you stay away from them and there are reasons why that might be the case like a good idea or you could sell it as a good idea but i love that i can like just top on the game and like chat at people or go on our subreddit or you know and just say hi (laughs) Well, that's something I've noticed uh, both about you and Steve. I didn't even realize that at Star Trek Las Vegas that he was Salami Inferno yeah. because we were using all real names at the at the con yeah. and he was actually the first person from the team I ever interacted with because he was in the Reddit chat in game. Yeah. I was like a new Redditor but I knew to join the chat because people were pretty yeah. helpful there in game Yeah. and I saw pink text that said Salami Inferno I'm like who is pranking this chat and they're like no it's a dev, it's a dev <laughs> and that was like my first encounter with anybody from the team um, and you're, you know, well known in the foundry <laughs> circles, and you're on Twitter, especially recently. You sort of exploded <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, I don't remember why I got a Twitter. It was like for a particular thing, maybe for the STLV. Uh, so I, uh, when I couldn't be in Vegas because it was rather last minute, but um, I mean, not the whole thing was last minute. My ability to go would have been last minute. I was like, well, what about all these other people that can't go? And it's like, okay, well, I actually know all these things, so I don't have to hear them say it. I just can't say it ahead of them, and I can't spoil anything. So I was like, okay, I'm going to reach out this to everyone. And so that's why I ended up with a Twitter, I think. So I was like, I'll keep it. I'm working on... The super top secret thing is I have a website and I'm working on this thing. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see I was doing Quinn on Holiday and Letters from Linnea. And so I think I'm going to support that 
you know, and tell further stories on my website. We'll see. Cool. Intriguing. Yeah, well, it's kind of disturbing, too, but... <laughs> what happened is, it starts so simply. You're updating the costumes so that everybody can, you know, wear the Odyssey uniform, and you're in there, and you're looking at Linnea, and you're like, man, she has had the same hairstyle and same look for, like, four years, you know? And she's sitting there so close to Quinn, and, you know, I bet... I bet she has a thing for him, you know? Yeah. I think it's time she took her hair down. She put on a little lipstick. I think she has earrings, you know? Like, this is a thing. And it may have something to do with the fact that this was probably 10 o'clock at night. And I'm here, and, I, and Thomas is shaking his head at me, you know, like, Maria, you lost it. But this is how you amuse yourself when you do these tedious tasks, is that you're like, you know what? I think this chick has gained some weight. <laughs> I'm going to tweak those sliders a little. How come everybody has the same body? They don't. No, they really don't. I made sure of that. And as far as Quinn goes, if if Captain Picard can go to Risa and put on his captain's... Uh, Banana hammock? Yeah, Captain Speedo, <laughs> then darn it, Quinn can go have some fun in the sun, too. Yeah, and he did. And he didn't even, I mean, he didn't bear quite as much. He had his little boy shorts. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. I'm, I I took a break from that unintentionally because I've just been <laughs> working too much. So, you know, I guess that's the part of the, the job that we don't talk about is that, like, you know, a 14-hour day is not super uncommon. Um, not every day, though. Like, so for the past, like, two or three weeks, I'd say, you know, I've probably done... 10-hour days, 12-hour days more than I haven't and, you know, work on the weekends. And it's not because anybody's forcing me. It's because I'm having fun. And, I mean, it, which doesn't mean it's not work, <laughs> just for the record. I mean, it can still be work. But it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do some work, and now I'm going to make some costumes and play, you know, Space Barbie, as some of the Redditors call it. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about what you are responsible for? What who, what teams do you oversee and, and what projects you're currently working on? I oversee the UI art team, the effects team, the animation team, the character art team, and until uh, last week, the ship art team. The Steve mentioned that we have a new a fledgling producer. Mm-hmm. He took over ship art from me. Okay. Which makes me so sad. They're my beautiful babies. Like, <laughs> one of the guys, I hired him in in QA when I was the QA lead, and then he moved up into art, and I moved up and became his producer, and then now now we're parting ways again. But it'll be, you know, it'll be good. And also, I sit right outside their office, so I go in there and say hi anyway. Um, and then, as for features that, I oversee the foundry. That is my baby. And, you know, we have what we'll call a sprint. If anybody knows anything about Scrum and Agile, it's not really the same because ours are like six weeks, which is unheard of. But over that time period, I'll oversee features too. Like I'll do Delta Rising Critter Groups, and which means, you know, scheduling meetings for, okay, we're going to start this. Okay, we need some play tests. How are the, how's the balance feeling here? Okay, you know. Well, maybe we'll come back once they're in some missions and we'll hook them up and we'll revisit and that sort of thing. And um, that's what I do for the guys for the most part is, you know, we have a meeting and we'll say, okay, here's what's coming up. Here We've got this, this um, enemy NPC group and they're going to attack. You know, they have all these powers. Well, what kind of powers do they have? We have to make effects for those. And, okay, and, and the systems designer will 
describe everything to the effects artist and I'll be there taking notes and and he goes in and he starts working on them and we have to have these sync ups like is this you know Brad our art director like does this look like the way you want it to look or do we want to head in a different direction and you know okay let's have a review of this and like oh you know this is just this was really great when there was only one but when we get in the fight there's like 20 people using this and it's way too intense which actually did just happen it's like we got to tone this down you know is that the rock and roll thing no it's um one of the uh the bug hunt one of the powers oh one of the powers down there yeah yeah the acid spew. I don't know if that's the actual canon name. That's what we call it internally. That's the hardest part I have with talking to people is that I know all the names that we call them here. Right. But the names that everyone else knows, I'm like, I don't know what that is. I have that problem too because when I came to the game, everything was renamed, I guess. All the PVE cues and... Yeah. (laughs) And so when I taught... When people type something, I I don't see it. I try to look. Right, I don't want to look stupid, ISC, so I pull K-A-S-E. it up. Yeah, and no, there's nothing like. Uh, now they have the, all the specific names, so it's like it's infected oh. the the conduit elite. So if someone says, <laughs> "Let's do an ISE," <laughs> Tiki I wasn't pulls on up the, the team when they did that. That's what I'm holding to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was my brief surge or not. It's like I know what they <laughs> are, but the language is different. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's that because like we have. You know, the costumes have one naming convention, and then the ship itself, which we call the puppet, has another naming convention. And then there is the public name, which would be, like, Intrepid. But then, you know, there's the Constellation and the Stargazer and this and that. And you're like, okay, I don't know how these names go together. I'm actually going to make a task for myself to make this big spreadsheet for all of us to say, okay, here's that a stone. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You can look it up and now Now you can find it. Yeah, because. Yeah. So you are responsible for all the beauty in Star Trek Online, No, I don't. Well, almost all. I don't do the environment art, which is, I think, actually, Delta Rising is some of the best we've done. Um, Just, wow. Like, the space maps. Holy cow. I was looking at them today. I was like, man, these are beautiful. Because when I first was playing through all the... um, the missions, we had placeholder art for the system space. You know, it was just space, basically, and the and the designers would be would put in whatever random planet just to kind of indicate <laughs> to the artist, planet goes here, and that would be it. No fog, no dust, it's no a debris. Big magic eight ball. Yeah, it's ba- <laughs> it's basically nothing, and it's so you're like okay, and you're trying to get an idea. And then, then I went through them recently, like uh, last week. I started a Klingon and um, planned through. It's like, holy cow, these look great! I don't even remember this map, you know. And of course, I didn't because it was changed drastically. I think Nick did that, Tumor Boy, for um, something. He kind of did a, a progress shot of like a map as it was Earth working. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was really cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. So you mentioned that Foundry was your baby, is your baby. Yes. When we reached out to the community asking for questions, I noticed specifically that nothing was coming in from the Foundry. I'm like, "Um, anybody with Foundry questions? And Kesmodian, I believe it was Kesmodian, was like, because we're all really happy. Yeah, Nick and I, I think, have worked really hard to try and give, like, tons of assets. Right now, I mean, neither of us can program, so, well, it's... Not in our engine, at least. I don't know about outside that. but So we can't fix a lot of the things that 
players necessarily want us to fix because they're programming problems or we can't implement new features that people want because it's just beyond our scope. So we're trying to do everything else that we can to kind of give players and foundry authors what they want. Um, So uh, he's been adding a bunch of environment props and maps and that sort of thing, which is amazing because I was doing that before And it just takes me a lot longer because I had to teach myself our tools by myself and they are not intuitive. If if anybody's ever used like Unreal, imagine sitting down to Unreal, but without any kind of video tutorial at all, because that's what we have here. We have this thing and it's expected you'll have someone next to you training you when you start up. But I wasn't about to take anyone's time away from their task, so... And then I taught myself how to do all the costume pieces for the editor and add new, like, NPC contacts and NPC groups. And so we've been doing that. Um, The thing I'm most happy to finally get is I made some NPC groups that are... I think the name I called them in the editor is Rogue. We call the allegiance Everyone Hates Me, which (laughs) is fairly accurate because anyone will fire upon those NBCs, and they will, in turn, fire upon anyone. So I made a Fed group and a Klingon group. Now you can reskin them to be whatever. And so you can have Feds fighting Feds in this instance because, you know, but then also Feds who will fight Klingons, right? So you'll have this rogue Federation group, and they would fight any kind of group you throw at them. And then I also made a couple groups that are Everyone Loves Me, which I called non-combat because... Nobody will fire at them, and they won't fire at anyone, so they can walk around. And uh, I made some Klingon groups that are aligned with the Federation and some Federation groups that are aligned with the Klingon so that, you know, people can tell those stories. Because that actually has been kind of a, a gaping hole in what we've had the ability to do. And I saw this in the editor one day, and I'm like, oh, is it really this easy to change that setting? I'm going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and I tested it out and it worked. I'm like, yes. So hopefully we don't have problems with those being exploited because that would be sad and I'd have to take them out. But I'm excited about that. And I've had the other big request we get uh, sometimes is for like boss encounters. So I've been talking with Jeremy uh, Bordicus about this and we are in discussions right now for things that we might be able to do there. So... That's exciting. I'm hopeful, but I don't know where that will be. Can you remind us what what the requests have been for the boss? Like, they just want bosses. So I was like, can we do this? Because the deal is, like, this limitation of having five people on the map. We can't get over that. But we could give harder encounters. Like, one of the cues that we're releasing, the the boss for that, and um, Kittimer Accord, no... Uh, the other one. Kittimer, um, yeah, that's right. Kittimer Vortex. Vortex, yeah. Kittimer Accord. Is it? Mm-hmm. Look at that. I Was remembered that something. Uh. <laughs> anyway, like Denatra, her whole fight, that isn't just like you put down this, the Denatra, and she goes, right? That's heavily scripted by the designers. So it's like listening for, oh, you know, this much damage or this, somebody's this close and all of that. I can't add anything like that to the foundry. But this boss from the bug hunt, actually, you just put that boss down and there you go. That's so, all built right into the critter. Yep. Ooh, that's yeah. neat. So hopefully we're going to look and see, like, how many of those do we have? Can we put them in? Is this viable? We'll see. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas like, for example, the, the regular board cube that you can drop into the foundry is more like the board cube you would encounter on one of the, these soloable missions where there's no real way to scale that like up to like, yeah, there's yeah. no real way to scale that up to like what you would fight in an STF cube. You can't put down like the queen's cube, the diamond, mm -hmm. and you, I don't know that you can specify tactical cube, which is the hardest. I'm not sure. Maybe Dreadnought. Or maybe the, um, excuse me, one of the captain encounters. They'll scale up to it if you have five players, right. but you can't really punish a single player. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, what, just to give our listeners a brief history, why, why do you have so much love for the Foundry? Oh, let's see. What does that go back to? I think that was after I had been here for... I don't know if it was for, like, a full year. I think it was. So after I'd been at the company for about a year, there was this project. I, I don't even know why I heard of it. That was around some kind of tool. And it's like, so uh, my previous history before Cryptic is I was, um, well, previous game history, I was a scripter, which is, like, high-level programming, meaning simple programming, not, like, super complex. And so I actually really missed that sort of challenge of, of thinking that way and, and tools testing which I thought this would be what is far more technical in that regard people who are really good at, at testing games are not necessarily really good at testing tools because you you have to try and think how it will break and you have to be able to think really technically to do that like how could a save fail and how could I try and do something horrible while this safe is failing to like really mess things up and so it's like oh I'm interested in this and they're like okay well we want your help we're working on this and so I started out as just testing it and I was getting frustrated because the guy they had trying to be the lead tester they just didn't have time this was like in addition to his other thing so I basically took over I was like okay look this needs to get done I'm doing this and I was going to all the meetings and basically I started acting as the test lead for it and almost as like a producer in a minimal kind of capacity because I was organizing everything about it um in the you know, not the design of it, but the testing and all of that. So I was QA lead of the foundry, and that's when it started is I, you know, doing that and, and working with these guys, and it was such a great team. And so I oversaw it, you know, from its earliest days in QA until it launched for Star Trek. And I, you know, when they were talking to me about, oh, we're, you know, we're going to break this out of, here and, and focus somewhere else. I'm like, you will take this project for me out of my cold, dead hands. And <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't true because it's not my project anymore, but it was sad. And so I've still maintained this fondness because I think the Foundry authors have been, in, in my experience, some of our most passionate players. They are really in love with Star Trek and further, like, with Star Trek Online, and they have these amazing stories they want to tell, and it's like, I don't have that in me personally, like, um, most people were pretty annoyed with my Foundry missions, because they were usually retellings of, like, you know, I had one called Epic Saga, and it was, it took place on a planet called Hyrule, <laughs> so that's... Yeah, and um, I think I remember that episode. That's a good throwback. Yeah, and then I had a. Uh, my favorite was the bloodening, which 
<laughs> it was kind of a jerk. You, I just dropped you down, and there were like five high-level encounters around you. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> and I got really low reviews. I don't. I, they're like this person. This is very nice. Blah blah blah. It's like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I would love to do a foundry mission. Create one. Yeah. I don't know anything about it or how it's done, but yeah, there's be really um, cool. the best resources are all from our players. Um, we were fortunate in that way. We tried to come up with training stuff for it, and holy cow, that was a nightmare. We all survived it, but we decided this is not going to happen. <laughs> Trying to get a video going, and you know the. They ended up making, they were like, oh, we can't see the mouse pointer. We need a bigger one. And this mouse pointer that they made was easily the size of, like, like a quarter of the screen. It was so ridiculous. It's like, okay, you know, this is a bit much. And it started this fighting between marketing and us. And, you know, it was just like, why are we doing this? This is a mess. Forget it. We'll, we'll, we'll write tutorials. And so... Um, I think Starbase UGC is probably still the go-to for all of this stuff. And they have been our best cheerleaders and our worst critics. and But all for the love of it, right? Like, you know, they just want the best thing ever. And I don't blame them because, you know, I want to give that to them. <laughs> okay. Actually, speaking of Foundry. So, Casmodian asked, and maybe you can answer this. Well, first, thank you for all the improvements to the Foundry in the last several months. You're welcome. Anne asks if Neverwinter tools might be ported over soon or something called campaign tech. I don't know about soon. The deal is it's actually really non-trivial to bring over the Neverwinter stuff. um, They basically have completely different code now. So the honest answer is I don't know. I do want to get... Not just me. We all want to bring over Neverwinter Foundry features uh, because they're amazing, and you know. But it is like one, like we talked about pet projects that sometimes can't happen right now, and eventually they will. This is one that we keep thinking about, and so we do have some time scheduled on our software team to look at some of the Foundry you know, requests and features and see what we can get done and maybe spend a little time, you know, every release cycle trying to get a little bit more. So I don't know if we'll ever reach uh, feature parity, but our goal is to get closer. When will the rest of the Delta Quadrant be open? That's Ray Borg via Facebook. How do we know it's not? All right. I mean, maybe there's a huge gap in the middle that's open and yet you just can't get there. It's not like there's a big close for business sign. Okay. Okay. No. um, You know. Uh, Wait. Wait, Lake. We'll check the eight ball. Source is hazy. Check back later. (laughs) Maria, thank you so very much. You are welcome. For sitting down with us and and interviewing and sharing with us so much. But uh, we'll have you again sometime. Don't be a stranger to Priority One, and we'll, we'll interview you again soon. Yeah. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See? All right, Captains, we are at the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies to see what's incoming from you, our listeners. And now this feedback is uh, encompassing not only our uh, episode 194, but our interview with systems designer Jeremy Bordicus Cryptic Randall uh, from our trip to Cryptic Studios and our topic on Intel Powers. 
Our first piece of feedback actually comes from Bordicus. Thanks for posting my interview. It was great to get the chance to walk somebody through some of these abilities and discuss some of the ways they can improve or modify players' existing builds. If this video ends up raising more questions than it answers, I'd be happy to field those. It's my intention that all players should be able to understand how and why they might want to use an intelligence bridge officer or obtain intelligence kit modules. Yeah, that video presentation was really educational. And I had tried those abilities, but when he said you could mix some of them, use some of them with other abilities or other consoles, that's when it really, that's when I started really learning more about the Intel bridge officer abilities, things that I didn't know before. Yeah, it was definitely exciting. And that was actually the first time that we've ever had uh, Jeremy on the show. Um, And so that was exciting to have him uh, come on and talk to us about it. The intelligence officer abilities, uh, the kit modules, the bridge officers, they all are really exciting. I mean, the um, the oil slick is fun. I mean, it does feel it does feel like a James Bondy kind of, you know, 1970s, 60s uh, espionage subterfuge movie kind of experience. So uh, it's, it's fun. It's definitely fun. Tucana 66 writes, terrific job by all involved, particularly Bordicus. Jeremy, you wouldn't happen to be interested in doing the live streams. Your calm demeanor and superb ability to explain the powers was exactly why this video cast was a winner. Kudos to P1 for just the right amount of comments and questions. I can honestly say I'm looking forward to taking my Intel officers into Delta Rising next week to try them out. Well, thanks to Kenna. We really very much appreciate uh, that type of feedback and criticism. It's, uh, it's fun to know that everybody enjoyed it and got something from it. Airborne 2506, thanks for all you do, P1 team. A.B. Thanks, Airborne. <laughs> You're my boy, Blue. <laughs> Saroncer commented on our Star Trek online forum post. Thanks for the in-depth showcase, Bort. And thanks to the P1 crew for making and sharing the video. It was an interesting watch and gave me some ideas for improving some builds I was already working on. Now, I don't know what that emoticon is. Well, really, the thanks goes to Cookie Cupcakes for editing that video. Thank you so very much for taking the time on to do that. Uh, I know it wasn't easy, and uh, I know that I appreciate it, and so does the rest of the Priority One team, and clearly so do our our listeners, so thank you for that. Larry Nemechek actually tweeted us, Hey, thanks at STO Priority One for the great at Enterprise in Space intro with our peeps Sean and Johnny. A great intro. I'm glad that Larry Nemechek had the opportunity of uh, catching that introduction. I know he's on the board of uh, Enterprise in Space, the a not-for-profit organization trying to uh, send a functional enterprise laboratory into space. Um, so it's it's fantastic. So we, it was our pleasure to do it. Don't Drunk I'm Shoot commented on our Star Trek online forum post. I totally love all the Intel powers. They freshen up the game tremendously. Being able to slot them in any seat type depending on the ship is a great boon for making all the ship types feel more equal. He goes on to describe in detail all the other things he appreciates about Delta Rising. Um, One of the things he mentioned that I agree with is he says, player ships are a house of cards held together by abilities. Take them away and they fold like a chair. I've never heard anybody say this before, but I've always thought it. So it's nice to know that I'm not the only one who thinks that. (laughs) Of course, the tier... Six Intel ships are definitely different than the Tier 5 ships. It's not like they're all the same. Definitely not now that we have those. But He goes on to say, Some players having builds that work at all is a lot to ask. For others, even using station powers is a lot to ask. 
For them, there will always be normal mode. For the rest of us, we want NPCs that only have hundreds of thousands of hit points if you let them use station powers to the magnitude a player ship can. I, I mean, the way I interpret it is that, you know, there there are players that, you know, are kind of just click buttons, and then there are players that try to get really deep into uh, the theory and the math behind all of their, their, their powers available to them on the ship. Um you know, I'm I'm one of those somewhere in between kind of players. So you know, these the introduction of, of a lot of these powers, the Intel bridge officers, it's going to take a while for me to warm up to them, right? Because just I feel like just as I was getting a grasp on it, um, you know, there's more stuff, right? So it's it's going to take me a while to warm up to them, and then kind of feel that I can use them in the way that that they're designed to be used. And captains, actually, we received an email with some reports regarding uh, issues that Star Trek Online is having with some of the Mac clients. Um, you know, this is something that we want to just kind of address and recognize that some players might just have be having some issues. And we encourage you guys to submit your tickets to the QA team uh, so that they can look into it. Uh, according to Skiffy, who would die and ask for a Mac to be mar- buried with him, uh, he's not having any issues. Um, so it might be a local concern um you know maybe you upgraded to yosemite and all of a sudden things are might be going a little crazy uh but we encourage you to submit all your information to the cryptic qa team uh, so that they can try to assess what might be going on with uh with star trek online and your max uh actually something i do want to talk about is um a comment that orangitis made on the forum post about the ai uh in star trek online and and the intelligence that the npcs seemingly have or, or, or lack of having um, to which Bordicus replied that it's not impossible to improve the AI, but it's time-consuming and inexact. And the payoff for the development time invested is rarely well-received by players. Either it results in enemies that are too smart or hard, or the changes aren't noticeable. And then Moonshadow actually replied, so either make it Skynet or make it C-3PO. And I think it's true. I think that there needs to be a, a fair balance for AI in any MMO that you play or any game that you play. And I think Star Trek has a, a very nice balance uh, with its AI. I don't find them to be overtly difficult. I remember when they had done a, a pass over the AI and it was like impossible. I think uh, uh, Mando Knight 89 commented about uh, in season six, uh, there was a Dideradex defender that was popping up and just kind of obliterating everything. I think it, there's a nice balance. All right, admirals. Each week, our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for the show. So please keep them coming and reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at STO priority one. And of course, you can always shoot us an email to incoming at priority one podcast.com. Well, that wraps up episode 195 of Priority One Podcast. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catchers to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. And don't miss our videos from our trip to Cryptic Studios by heading over to youtube.com forward slash P1 Network. And of course, you can visit PriorityOnePodcast.com for all of this content. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show in the comment section on our site or on the STO forum post for this episode. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. You can head over to facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One podcast team in game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join forward slash Priority One. 
Captains, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One Podcast. Would you like to get our content early? Find out about that perk and more by becoming a patron of Priority One Podcast. Visit patreon.com forward slash priority one to find out more. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. The Priority One fleet is recruiting. If you're interested in joining, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. And now you can join our Klingon fleet division, Warriors of Priority One. Join today! A very special thanks to Perfect World Entertainment and Cryptic Studios for spending two full days with Priority One Podcast, and to all the devs of Star Trek Online that sat and chatted with us about the game. To this week's guests, lead content designer Charles Gray, and Star Trek Online's lead producer Stephen Rocosa and producer Maria Rosso. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast, including our audio engineers Skiffy and Ben Churchill. And QA support staffer, Midnight Shadow 7. Thanks to our graphic artist, Romulan Ale. And to all our bloggers and their managing editor, L. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Epic Gamer Radio, Subspace Radio, and Trek Radio. But captains, most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek online community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapon. Engage. Then, an interview with STO's producers, Stephen Ricosa, lead producer, Maria Rosso, producer. What? <laughs> when can I talk about Charles Gray? Oh, I told you to do it right after. Right after what? After incoming messages. Oh, I love Charles Gray. You can just put that in at the end for me. Okay. He's the man of my dreams. <laughs> He's so smart. He makes Star Trek Online so much <laughs> Is this the big plan you had? No, I just want to tell you about my feelings. No! <laughs> I'm from up north, and it's coming out. It comes out when I get emotional. <laughs> and no. I just love Charles Gray, okay? I just love him. Don't He's my know. favorite. He was, he was one of the highlights of my trip. <laughs> I'm being serious. No. no. That was awesome. I'm getting warm. Whew. It's getting hot in here. <clears throat> the coffee. Uh, yeah, that must be it.